Okay, welcome, welcome back to, uh, this is not, I almost said Exploring the Lord of the Rings, which this is not. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy and our discussion of the War of the Ring. Uh, I, I wish a good evening to all of you who are being uh, pelted with snow here on the first day of spring. Um, those of you further south than me, looks like the snow's not quite going to make it up this far. Or we may get a few inches before morning, my children still desperately holding on to hope that they'll have another snow day, as there has not yet been a week of May of March in which they have not had a snow day. So they're uh, they're hoping, uh, but uh, but yeah, we should be good. So I think uh, tonight's broadcast should be unthreatened, uh, largely by snow. Um, so um, that'll uh, that should be. That should be fine. Um, anyway, but I, but I hope that all of you who are being snowed on are doing well. Um, I could tell. I, I, I was uh, noticing that this storm is coming through and uh, hitting my old stomping grounds down there in Delaware, and I could just imagine the panic, uh, I, how well I remember it, uh, and the amusement it generally caused me. But anyway... Tonight, we are headed into Mordor. So we are, uh, you may remember that we are all caught up with our reading from last time, and I aim to remain so uh, for um, uh, through next time. So let's see if I can do all of my slides again tonight. I'm feeling all cocky now. Um, but um, cool. So, oh, well, they've already called a, a delay there in Massachusetts. Brandon, wow. You know, back in the old days, when I was a kid, they never did that. They never called it in advance. Ah, well. Anyway. Um, okay. So, um, let's, uh, let's, talk about, let's talk about the Dead Marshes and stuff, because that's where we're beginning. So, um, uh, yeah, so the, tonight's class is called The Right Road for Mordor, because, of course, Tolkien is still trying to figure out what the right road is for Mordor. Uh, it's uh, kind of amusing, of course, in the light of, uh, you know, the modern meme culture that uh, uh, to, to see what what a difficult time Tolkien actually figured, uh, had figuring out how one does, in fact, walk into Mordor, right? It can be done, uh, but he kept changing his mind about how that was meant to happen. So uh, anyway, um, Let's start with uh, 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 recalling, this is uh, a quotation, of course, Christopher Tolkien gave us this again, um, which he had also given us back in, I believe it was The Treason of Isengard, it, but yeah, it, but, but it was a while ago, it was in the, that story foreseen from Lorien outline. Um, but So this is just to, to, to remind us, this is the, that old outline, that very first outline when he was first envisioning the, the journey of Frodo and Sam uh, with Gollum uh, into Mordor. Um, so just to recall that. Gollum pleads for forgiveness and promises help, and having nowhere else to turn, Frodo accepts. Gollum says he will lead them over the dead marshes to Kirithungal, chuckling to himself to think that this is just the way he would wish them to go. They sleep in pairs, so that one is always awake with Gollum. Gollum all the while is scheming to betray Frodo. He leads them cleverly over the dead marshes. They are dead. Gr there are dead green faces in the stagnant pools, and the dry reeds hiss like snakes. Frodo feels the strength of the searching eye as they proceed. At night, Sam keeps watch, only pretending to be asleep. He hears Gollum muttering to himself words of hatred for Frodo and lust for the ring. The three companions now approach Kirithungal, the dreadful ravine which leads into Gorgoroth. Kirithungal means spider glen. There dwelt great spiders. So, okay. 
Um, so a few things, of course, obviously, one of the most striking things about this old outline, this being, as I recall, one of the very, very first uh, shots he took at, uh, at their journey, there's a lot here that we can see is... You know, very much. I mean, there's there's a lot to recognize here, right? I mean, we can see the 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 the, the bones of a lot of the future story here in these initial future concepts, but there are several differences, right? Some are sort of smallish differences, which I still think very significant. Some are pretty major differences, right? Um, one of the uh, one of those sort of smallish ones that I think pretty significant is Gollum's attitude towards Frodo, right? Gollum is simply flat out lying all the way from the beginning, right? He promises to help, but the entire time is actively scheming to betray him. That image of him, like, you know, Gollum, like, evilly chuckling to himself about, uh, you know, the fate that he has in mind for Frodo. And and when that he, Sam, overhears Gollum simply, like, you know, engaging in, in like, you know, villain monologues about how much he hates Frodo and how much he wants the ring. Um, it's not wholly different from what we get later on, right? I mean, we do hear the the stinker voice, you know, in the final debate that we get in the published text, uh, uh, you know, hating Frodo, right? And uh, and being, being angry. Um, but um, uh, anyway, so that's... Uh, but again, nevertheless, I think this is a, a significant change, right? The concept of the sort of relationship between um, the relationship between Frodo and and uh, Gollum, right, was going to develop and change very, pretty significantly, and that has a really big impact. I have to think um, there really is. It's nothing near so straightforward. Right. Um, once we get to the uh, to the to, to the later story, and of course, I think the story a great deal richer uh, than this merely one hundred percent deceitful golem uh, all the way through. One interesting thing that I notice as a consequence of this, though, is that Sam's suspiciousness of Gollum is from the beginning simply good, right? I mean, we've talked about this a little bit last time in the whole varmint passage, right? But um, the the suspiciousness of Sam, Sam's like utter intolerance of Gollum from day one, is one of the things that in the published text is sort of inevitably mixed, right? It's understandable. Um, it's justifiable in many ways, and yet it's one of the least sympathetic elements of Sam's awesome character all the way through the books, right? Um, the mercilessness of his distrust of Gollum. Um, and we see it has, in the end, it has tragic consequences. Um, so that's a big deal, right? But again, the interesting thing is that we see Sam being suspicious all the way through from the beginning, right? But in the beginning, when he's... It's so like the... At the start, his suspiciousness is simply good because Gollum is, in fact, just a conniving villain, villain all the way through. And so Sam is doing him no injustice of any kind, right, by being suspicious of him. And that's interesting to me, you know, that basically as the story grows and Gollum's character becomes more complicated and Frodo's relationship with him becomes more complicated, Sam's 
relationship, therefore, and Sam's suspicions also become more complicated, or in a sense they don't, right? Like they are remain simple, even though everything else has become complicated, and therefore sort of the consequences and implications of his uh, suspicions ha- become more complicated even now. Okay, Sam's suspicion, that's where we were. Other things about the old outline. Um, of course, Kier Thungle, uh, and that so so we had the you know the stuff about their characters, which is interesting, but also the initial concept. He's only conceiving at this point one way into Mordor, right? Um, and that main pass is called Kirithungal, and there are spiders that live there, right? So the idea is that this so this sort of main entrance into Mordor is guarded by these giant spiders, and there's not one giant spider, there's scads of giant spiders, right? It's plural giant spiders every time, every time we see that. Um, so this clearly seems to be, you know, pretty much kind of using the using the Hobbit model, right? I mean, the Mirkwood, the Mirkwood spiders, presumably less comical, so they might be amped up a little bit, but it's, uh, um, it's definitely, uh, it's definitely, it's definitely there. Um, uh, yeah, so, um, uh, yeah, yeah, Brandon says, uh, Ungol as in Ungoliant. It was only recently I realized that Kirith Ungol should have immediately told me what kind of being, uh, an, uh, Ungoliant was, right? Or vice versa, right, uh, Brandon? Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, also, Brandon, uh, spiders now in, uh, the guarding the past to Mordor, uh, spiders now with, uh, a, uh, significantly less comedy, right? Um, uh, and I doubt, Stephen, that they would even need somebody to sing a song to rile them up, right? So, uh, uh, you know, they, 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 it sounds like they're going to come pre-riled. At least the draft that we saw before in the Treason of Isengard certainly suggested that. Um, and, of course, the one other thing, uh, which is sort of an obvious kind of addendum to the whole Gollum's uh, treacherous character is more simple in this initial conception point, is that he's planning to betray him from the beginning, not just to the spiders, right? Um, but to the Nazgul, right? There's this, you know, he is trying to turn Frodo in. That's what the chuckling is about, right? Um, Frodo wants to go just where he wants to take him, which is where he's going to be most easily uh, uh, betrayed. But you'll remember that one of the issues, and I remember pointing this out at the time and and are talking about this a little bit uh, in the Treason of Isengard class, in these initial outline conceptions as as he he began to think about Frodo and Sam approaching Mordor for the first time... um, he was working with plot concepts, right? Um, and he was pretty emphatically not working with geography. Um, so remember that you know when uh, Gollum seemed to be like teleporting, right? How they 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 heard the Nazgul and the army coming out of the pass, and there's Gollum and and they're like somewhere else, but like Gollum is running back and he's running, and he seems to be covering miles and miles, like Tolkien clearly not thinking or worrying about the geography here, Uh, like he's he's hearing something way, way, an army way off in the distance, and then Gollum is like running back and being like, hey, you know, Nazgul, the ring, you know, the ring bearer is right over there, and running back to try to capture Frodo. Um, So, but again, the whole point was, 
Tolkien had the concepts, right? He had the story concepts, he had the character concepts, but he didn't have the logistics worked out. Uh, and of course, that's one of the main things that we see as we're working, as we work through these two chapters tonight, the passage of the, Mar- of the marshes and the Black Gate is closed. Um, we will see him working out the logistics. And as he does, this whole question of where is that pass again? And what does it do? And how do you get in? And how are they actually going to get in anyway? Uh, begins to become a problem. And you'll recall that this was always a problem, right? At the end of the day, he ended up getting stymied. Um, his whole, the whole story concept ended up getting stymied, uh, apparently, by at least in part the logistics, right? You know, the idea that Frodo was going to get captured and then Sam was going to rescue him and they were going to escape. Of course, he was going to get captured and hauled to Minas Morgul uh, first. And uh, and Sam was going to sneak into Minas Morgul and was going to was going to get him out. But he couldn't really figure out how to get him out. Right. The Nazgul showed up because, of course, they would right right away. Um, and then they he seemed to be stuck. Like, how does he get them? You know, how can he plausibly get Sam and Frodo out of Minas Morgul? And as you'll recall, that's where the whole thing trailed off. He never went back. He never finished those outlines and those, uh, uh, in some places, quite long and detailed, uh, you know, plot schemes with uh, dialogue and stuff. Um, it kind of fizzled at the rescuing of Frodo from uh, Kirith Ungol. Not Kirith, well, it wasn't Kirith Ungol, actually. It was Minas Morgul, I mean. Um so anyway, now we're going to really confront the logistics and try to uh, and try to sort this out. But uh, before we do that, um, we're going to come back to the we're going to come around to the logistics of how you get into Mordor and where the pass is and what the pass is and and all that uh, all that kind of stuff. Um, but I do want to hit on a few things first. First, I'll, I want to talk about the dead marshes. I don't want to I don't get so focused on the pass into Mordor that we we leave the marshes behind entirely because that's of course a really interesting point. Um, so we'll look at a few passages, uh, a couple more passages that is from the dead marshes. Uh, second, I want to look more some more at Gollum's character. I've got some some notes about Gollum uh, and uh, his depiction in these in in the the early goes here through these uh, through these chapters. Uh, things that I found really interesting, and if you think that one of them is his song. You are correct. Uh, and then I want to look at, then I want to, after that shift to the getting into Mordor stuff and look at the passes and where the, how he's shifting everything around. Um, and then we'll end up talking about, uh, 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 Sam and his name. Uh, so anyway, that's the plan. So, um, let's, uh, let's move ahead to his, uh, his newer outline. As he's thinking about this, so now remember, he's we've just done, we've just gotten out of the Emin Wheel. We've had the complicated climbing up and down cliffs. We've had the capture of Gollum, and we have the scene with you know we looked at this at the end of uh, class last time, um, uh, which was the 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 capture of Gollum and the promise you know swearing on the precious and uh, the you know Frodo's flashback and that whole like the inspiration of the further passage about, uh, you know, uh, you know, for even the wise can't see all ends, all that stuff from Gandalf. Um, so that stuff has all happened, right? The oath and, and, and everything. Um, so here's his, uh, outline food problem. Gollum chokes at Lembus, but it does him good. Question mark goes off and comes back with grimy fingers and face. Once he heard him crunching in dark. That's, by the way, just a really nasty image. Like just hearing the crunchings from Gollum off uh, in the darkness would be uh, uh, really creepy. Um, but anyway, um, 
Of course, the reference to the Lembus is a really interesting one, right? I mean, you'll recall that in the in the published text, Frodo says that, you know, perhaps Gollum can't even try to eat it now, but that he thinks it would do him good if he did, right? Um, and it's interesting to see that Tolkien was actually positing that he chokes out it, but it does, in fact, do him good. So that, you know, the, the first connection between Gollum and Lembus was of Gollum actually being in some way benefited uh, by the Lembus. It sounds like initially he was going to choke on it, but choke it down, right? So he was actually going to eat it, even though he was going to, you know, choke and gasp and presumably complain about it. Um, and that it would do him good in some way. I am really interested to uh, think about what that would have looked like, right? Um, what good would it have done, Gollum? Um, I'm wondering even, is this, um, is this the beginning of sort of Tolkien's, I don't want to say relenting exactly, but okay, I'll say that, his sort of relenting towards Gollum in the sense of making him a less uh, unambiguously treacherous and evil uh, person, um, amplifying the pitiableness of Gollum, which of course was already an important feature. Uh, you know, Gollum, people having pity on Gollum has been important all the way through. And we had that speech last time, uh, in chapter one, um, of, uh, of book four about, uh, you know, the pity of Bilbo and, 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 and Frodo having pity on him. And yet just as we're doing that, Still, he's envisioning Gollum as, you know, mostly being just treacherous, right? So, is this the idea of sort of a transition out of that? Is he thinking that Gollum is going to be totally treacherous in his intentions at first, that when he swears, he swears falsely, and yet uh, he is changed, improved? He, he So he begins to change for the better, Um not only just through his interactions with Frodo, uh, gee, I was going to say Frodo and Sam, but let's not kid ourselves, right? It's interactions with Frodo that do him any good. I don't think Sam does him much good at all. Um, uh, you know, and, but, but also through, you know, essentially the blessing of the elves, right? Through the medium of the Limbas. Um, so, you know, uh, I think, um, I think it's I think it's interesting. Yeah, Kate uh, Neville is suggesting the Lembus question seems like the incipient change to Smeagol, and that's exactly that's exactly what I'm seeing too. Especially Kate, you think about where that line ends up at, right? How Frodo is perceiving Gollum's inability to eat the Lembus as sort of a reflection of where he is on the road to recovery. <laughs> Namely, not very far along it, right? But that if he did get farther along it, it, it would uh, uh, it would do him good. In other words, the question of Gollum eating Lembus still raises the issue of the recuperation of Gollum, right? Explicitly from, from Frodo uh, in the published text. So yeah, I, I, I see that association too. Um yeah, Tony wonders what Gollum's issues with the elves were all about. Um, yeah, I mean, because he's got, you know, there's obviously it's not just the Lembus, but there's the rope and even his complaining about the smell of the uh, of the uh, of the Malorn leaves, right? Uh, that he couldn't get off his hands. Um, it's not it's not entirely clear, I think. Um, that is to say, I mean, on the one hand. It kind of seems simple enough. Um, 
it seems simple enough in a, in a, in a, in a simple sense, right? You know, you're just like, whoa, okay, so, um, you know, Gollum's evil and the elves are good, and so, like, the good stuff of the elves has, like, good elf magic about it, and he hates it, right? And, and, and it, you know, does him harm um, because he's evil. But as soon as you say that out loud, it's pretty obvious how simplistic that is, right? And it's not... I mean, would the elf rope burn the flesh of an orc? Maybe it would, right? Um, you know, we don't really know exactly. Um, what about, you know, an Easterling or a Dunlending, right? Um, you know, it, what is it in the nature of 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 that? You know, so what is it about elf magic and elf things uh, that is so hateful to Gollum? Why is it why does he have such an antipathy to them? And I don't know. That does not seem to me to be completely clear, really. Some of it, like the the smell thing about the Malorn leaves, seems to just be an expression of his preference, right? I can remember the scene where he's... Um, you know, muttering and and uh, like when uh, when you know Faramir is speaking politely to him and everything, and they're saying you know there's that uh, that line that the narrator says that you know Gollum is acting like as if to show his disregard of such courtesies, right? Gollum doesn't want to hear it. Uh, he is determined to hate Faramir uh, and to say that Faramir did him wrong, right? And so he won't. He, like, you know, turns away from any kind of evidence of kindness or goodness or anything like that. Is the same way, is there some of that going on with Gollum and the elves? It seems to me likely, right? And I would suspect that that's part of the reason why um, he dislikes the smell of the Malorns so much. Just because they're associated with the elves and he's decided he hates the elves, right? But to me, that's not enough to explain why the rope freezes and bites him, Um and the reaction to the Lembus seems physiological as well, rather than simply distaste, right? As surely uh, he could smell... I mean, it was wrapped in a Malorn leaf, the smell of which he hates, right? So if he had just sniffed it and been like, ugh, ah, no, I, you know, I can't eat that, I won't eat that. Again, I might think it was just his own preference, him expressing his, anti- his antipathy against the elves, but I, I, it seems to me... It seems to me more than that. Um, no, Patricia, they didn't hold him captive. The elves of Mirkwood held him captive. Um, it was Thranduil's folk that um, that held him captive. So um, he wasn't imprisoned there by them. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, it's possible, um, Tony, that it is like the glue-blowing sword, that it just knows an enemy. Uh, that there's a similar kind of elf magic in the rope as there was in the swords, right? The swords from Gondolin. Um, Perhaps. But why the Lembus? I don't know. The Lembus makes less sense to me uh, in this way because Lembus... We know that the orcs don't want anything to do with it, right? When they, uh, you know, with Frodo's 
Lembus cakes that he had in his pockets uh, when he's taken by the orcs in Carathungal eventually. Um, but, but again, that kind of seems a personal choice on their on their part, and also it's not shared with them, and that's kind of a big deal. Lembus is a gift. Right. Um, this is made a big deal of in the Silmarillion, for instance, when Melian gives Lembus to Beleg, uh, and Beleg chooses to share it with Turin and the other outlaws, some of whom are jerks. Right? I mean, they're just outlaws. They're just criminals and murderers um, who were highwaymen waylaying and, and killing elves and men as well as orcs um, prior to you know Turin's change of heart. After the first meeting with Belwig and the uh, and with the outlaws, so I mean those outlaws are not noble folks, um, but it doesn't do them any harm. And why not? Because Belwig shared it with them, right? He had the right to distribute it as he chose, and he chose, right? Frodo does the same thing with Gollum. Um, that's why I, I'm 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 the the part the thing I find most puzzling, really. Um, I could even buy the whole rope being like the swords thing, Tony. But the Lembus, Frodo shared it, right? It was given to him and he gave it to Gollum. I don't know. Um, yeah. Um, I wonder. Maybe Tara's wondering if it's not the presence of a negative, but the lack of a positive, you know, and that only uh, elf friends get the benefits. Well, no, but again, see, the Turin and the Outlaw suggests to me that, again, it's not about, it's not about the, any qualification of the eater um, so much as the, the intention of the giver, as far as that is concerned. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, and Mike, I can certainly yes, there is an unthinking inherent magic in everything the elves craft. They could they put some of the thought of all the things that they love into everything that they that they make, right? And that's what hobbits call magic. Uh, yeah, there is. My only question is why should it operate like that? Like that's what I don't exactly understand. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Ollie is saying it's you know, perhaps the problem is in Gollum that he rejects anything that's good, and it may well be. I mean, I think it may, it may be a reflection of his own choice. That Ollie would seem to be Frodo's theory in the published text, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, right. Well, let's. Sorry, I, I didn't even finish reading this passage yet. <laughs> let's 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 move forward. Next chapter. I always love this. There's nothing that 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 I find more adorable than Tolkien's initial concept of what his chapters are going to are going to cover. Right. Uh, it's uh, it's it's great fun. Tolkien or sorry, Tolkien. Gollum takes them down into the water gully and then turns away eastward. It leads to a hard point in the midst of the marshes, over dead marshes dead faces. In some of the pools, if you looked in, you saw your own face, all green and dead and corrupted. Takirathungal. Change in Gollum as they draw near. Um, so, this was the first uh, conception of the dead marshes, right? Uh, are we going to get the dead faces of, you know, f- 
soldiers of years past. Yeah, sure. Uh, but that's not the central point, right? That's not the point he includes in the outline. Um, in the outline, the emphasis is on the fact that your own face is reflected back uh, green and dead and corrupted. Um, so what is the nature of the power of the dead marshes? And where does that power come from? Uh, this question is something even more... Uh, seems to me to be a sharper question uh, in this ver- with that element than without it. Um, but we'll come back to that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, Kate says the dead marshes are, are make a sort of reverse mirror of Galadriel, right? Yeah, it is interesting, right? Uh, thinking about the whole looking into the reflection of water thing, the mirror of Galadriel. Well, it feels like forever ago now, right, uh, as we've been going through the history of the Lord of the Rings. But, of course, in the published text, it's not so long ago uh, that we did the mirror of Galadriel. Anyway, um, but more on the dead faces. They come to a point where the gully falls into the marshes. So this is the, the fuller text. That was the outline. Brief description of these, which take about three to four days to cross. Pools where there are faces, some horrible, some fair, but all corrupted. Gollum says it is said that they are memories, question mark, of those who fell in ages past in the battle before and endure, the gates of Mordor in the great battle. In the moon, if you looked in some pools, you saw your own face fouled and corrupt and dead. Describe the pools as they get nearer to Mordor as like green pools and rivers fouled by modern chemical works. They lie up in foothills and see armed men and orcs passing in. Soon all is clear. Sauron is gathering his power and hiding it in Mordor in readiness. Swart men and wild men with long braided hair out of east, orcs of the eye, etc. Okay. Uh, One brief point that I want to touch on before we uh, get uh, 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 too deep into the discussion of the dead faces. Um, Dating, right? Uh... There is that passage, and again, Christopher Tolkien, in his notes, has been very firm about this, and I'm sure he has really good reasons, but they haven't yet been, he hasn't yet made them apparent at this point in the text, right? Uh, This is the second time that we have seen that Tolkien seems to be entertaining the idea of a short third age. Right, um, Gollum said in the dialogue that when Frodo mentions uh, that uh, that Isildur took the ring from uh, the enemy's hand, Gollum hadn't heard that. That's news to Gollum, right? Um, and Frodo says it's because it hadn't happened yet when he was a kid. Right. Um, remember, Gollum is about 500 years old. You'll remember also, just a couple chapters ago, that Tolkien was plainly toying with the idea that Eorl the Young rode to the succor of Isildur and Elendil and Gilgalad at the Battle of the Black Gate. Right, um, And so, therefore, he was contemplating the extreme protraction of the Third Age um, 
uh, into you know so that the 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 loss of the ring you know the the enemy only lost the ring five hundred years ago. Um, now the um, the in his note to the Aeorl the Young thing, where it is perfectly clear that Aeorl the Young came to the the aid of Elendil himself, right? Um, in his footnote on that passage, Christopher Tolkien says, "Oh yeah, you know this." He briefly toyed with this, but he he quickly, uh, uh, you know, totally rejected this, or like you know this is odd. He was really playing down the idea that Tolkien was serious about making that thing, and then when Gollum says that thing about that Gollum himself was alive during the time of the battle. You know, that this happened when he was a kid. Um, Christopher sort of deflects that. And, you know, in his, uh, you know, he's like, well, no, surely what Gollum meant was that when he was a kid, the stories that were told him when he was a kid came from those times, right? Um, it's not that Gollum was actually alive at the time of the the Battle of the Black Gate. But again, I'm remembering the Errol the Young thing, and I'm like, you know, it kind of sounds like he really is still thinking, uh, or at least considering the possibility of making the whole Third Age be 500 years long to this point. Um, and that doesn't seem to me to be uh, um, a completely insane idea. I mean, we talked about it at the time. It does leave the the time remaining for, like, the rise and fall of Gondor is relatively small, but it's not an impossible time frame. Uh, it would be a little bit challenging. Um, but anyway, you know, I, I'm not sort of insisting on it, but I'm a little bit puzzled so far at the uh, stridency with which Christopher Tolkien is denying that it's even really a possibility at all. He's so firm about it that I'm perfectly willing to believe him uh, because there's pre- he probably has a good reason for saying that. Uh, but like I said, he hasn't presented it yet. Anyway, so I wanted to just briefly mention that. Um, uh, okay, now... The business about the modern chemical works. That is very interesting, Nancy. And... Um, uh, yeah, that's really interesting. Both Brandon and Stephen Cover were both saying that the the modern chemical works thing sounds like the Hobbit narrator in the sense of like the a modern narrator, right? Speaking of modern things, like the freight train narrator, as Brandon says. Um, the reference, the, of course, the comparison of the sound of the uh, the 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 dragon rushing by like a like an express train in chapter one of the of Fellowship of the Ring, but. I don't think so, um, because this is still this is still outliney, right? I mean, you can see um, this is not the final prose here. Um, note that sentence: describe the pools as they get nearer to Mordor, as like green pools and rivers fouled by modern chemical works. I don't think that that means he's going to actually necessarily literally compare them to modern chemical works. It's just he's saying this is what I want to describe, right? So imagine green pools and rivers fouled by modern chemical works. Describe it to make it sound like that. This sounds like a note to himself, basically. Um, rather than something that he's actually going to say in the text. Not that I think it's impossible that he would say this in the text. Um, but uh, but, but I, it doesn't seem to me uh, clear that he was planning to actually allude to it in the text. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, now... The moon, right? 
several of you. Nancy was interested in the moon. Uh, Tara's interested in the moon. Um, what's up with the influence of the moon? Now, Tara is recalling the, um, the moon runes, right? Uh, and, Tara, we not only get the, the moon letters on Thorin's map, right, but also the, uh, the, the, the runes on the Moria Gate, right, which reflect only moonlight and starlight. Um, so we have several precedents for the sort of the, the influence of the moon on things, but see, in both of those cases, it's not exactly, it's not about like power being derived from the moon or something like that, right? This is, um, this is about, um, this is about the working of something which uses the moon as an implement, right? Like the <clears throat> the special ink that's used to make the moon letters, such that only a moon of the type on which it was made, you know, will will, will show it up, right? Or again, the letters reflect only moonlight or starlight, but it's the writing itself, right, which is which uses mithril in it. Um, <clears throat> which does the reflecting, right? So it reflects things selectively, and one of the things it, sel- it selectively reflects, uh, which is hard to say, is the moonlight. But again, it doesn't seem to suggest that there's any any moon virtue necessarily going here. Um, but here's um, uh, here's here's a quick thought, though. What's the influence here? What is the what what is the effect of the moon? Um, in the moon, if you looked in some pools, you saw your own face fouled and corrupt and dead. Why should the moon be crucial to that? Um, and yes, Rachel, I do understand the word corrupted in this sense, meaning decayed. I don't think it means evil, like to see your face morally corrupted, right? Your face, like, you know, a mask of, like, evil desires or intentions. I I, I do believe that corrupted means rotten. Yeah, decayed. Um, Well, I agree, Stephen. Of course, it would be rather disappointing, wouldn't it, if it were simple as if you look in without the moonlight, you don't see anything because it's dark, right? And suppose we can't rule out uh, a really simple kind of mechanical thing like that. But, But here's my quick thought. Remember the symbol of Minas Morgul? as it's described, right? The moon defaced by a, a sickly face. Um, the moon, the Tower of the Moon, has been changed to Minas Morgul, the Tower of Sorcery. And that corruption, that twisting of the light, that revelation of death, right, um and again even the memory of it in the uh in the in the banner of Minas Morgul 
I'm wondering if this is not because again, I, let me let me explain what leads me to think that. I keep coming back to the first, my first question, which is why the heck does this happen in the first place, <laughs> right? Why is there this creepy magic about these marshes that show people reflections of themselves dead and corrupted, like? There has to be some power at work. Something is causing this, right? What is causing it and why? Um, And as I said, as I suggested before, I think the fact that it's their own faces, uh, first and foremost, as well as the faces of those who fell in the battle, some horrible, some fair, like that is some orcs and some elves, um, I think it changes things. To me, it changes things, right? Because it suggests that, as it were, it's a little dangerous to use this verb in connection with this, but the intention of the power, right, uh, the function of the power at work, the purpose of the power at work, is to show all things corrupted, right, without their own faces being reflected. When, in the published text, we just get the corpses... Right, um, the corpses from the battle of long ago. Of course, at this point, thousands of years ago. The effect. Um, I mean, there's still sort of a question of why does the Earth do this? You know, why does the de- what 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 is the cause of this effect in the dead marshes? Um, and my answer to that question. Do you know? I think. I just hit on a question which, in in like 10 years of Tolkien professoring, no one has ever asked me. I don't think I've ever once gotten that question. Why do the dead marshes do what they do? Like, what makes that... Uh, sorry, it's so rare that I can't go on a question I've never been asked before. I don't think I ever was. But if I were asked that, what my what my answer would be would be something like, it's it's the memory of the land, Right? Um, uh, the, the, the land itself recalls the battle, right? It recalls the slain of the battle of Daggerlad, right? And it has retained the memory, even though, needless to say, you know, they're, they're only images to see, not to touch, as Gollum explains, right? They're not really there. Uh, it's just the, the earth is remembering it. It's kind of like how Holland remembers the Noldor who lived there, right? It remembers the elves of Eregion. So the Dead Marshes remembers the thousands of corpses that it absorbed, right? Um, and uh, and I so I think that it's um, exactly James Stevens was thinking of the same thing, like the rocks and stones that talk to Legolas. Uh, yeah, exactly. So this seems to me the Dead Marshes, as we get it in the published text, again with only the only thing you see in it being the memory of the corpses of ancient days, sounds to me like one of those local spirit things, right? Like the spirit of this particular area, just as the the spirits of Holland still remember the elves, so the spirits of the Dead Marsh region still remember all the corpses that, and the land is still scarred. Right? It's still damaged by all the horrible things that happened, by all the, uh, the, the thousands and thousands of, of slain. Um, now, 
but it changes things for me. If you look and you see your own face corrupted, that's more than just, I remember, you know, the land cannot forget the dead, all the dead that lie there from the ancient battle. That's different, right? That's a present function. It's not a memory. It's not only a memory, that is to say. Um, Instead, it seems to be like a more present force, which is interested in at least representing, if not actually bringing about, uh, the decay and corruption of everything that looks into it, of everything that comes near it. It becomes almost more predatory, if that's exactly, if that's the right way to say it. I don't know if that makes the dead marshes seem more dangerous. I guess it seems to me like it makes it seem more dangerous, because whatever power it has to create these illusions, to, to make you see these things, seems to be at least wanting to affect you as well, and not just to show you things from what it remembers from the past. Um, yeah, that's not a memory, it's a curse, Tony, is exactly the kind of thing that I, that I, would, uh, that I would describe. Um, so, anyway, yeah, um, I... So I do think that this initial conception is very different already, and it seems more active. Therefore, the link to the moon itself, right? Um, that in the moon, if you looked in the pools, you see your own face foul and corrupt and dead. Then um, the moon, I'm thinking of Minas Ithil, right? Especially since Minas Ithil, at least in one version of the story, is right there, right? I mean, you can almost see it from there. Um and, of course, it's no longer the Tower of the Moon, it's the Tower of the Corrupted Moon, and then recalling that image of the, the, the decayed face uh, of death uh, as the symbol of Minas Morgul, I was like, okay, right? So, uh, that's my theory. That's my theory about the dead, this version of the Dead Marshes, right? This, I guess it's not 1.0, it's technically 2.0, but, um, but this seems to have been part of the story from the beginning, right? And that link to the moon, I can't help but bring in Minas Ithil uh, in that way. Um, uh, okay. Anything else I wanted to talk about here? I don't think so. Um, oh, by the way, you remember my Angelica Baggins reference, right? My subtitle for this slide was Angelica Baggins Got Off Easy. Of course, you'll remember Angelica Baggins is the one who gets the convex mirror from Bilbo when he weaves, uh, because she... Uh, uh, too obviously considered her face shapely. Uh, good thing Uncle Bilbo didn't have access to this kind of mirror. He might have cured her entirely uh, of looking in the mirror, not to mention uh, given her lots of uh, 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 psychiatry bills. Anyway, um, Gollum's internal debate. One, of course, one of the great highlights of the Dead Marsh's trip uh, in the published text. Gollum sleeps quite unconcerned, quietly at first, but as they draw near to Mordor, he seems to get nightmares. Sam hears him beginning to hold colloquies with himself. I love that expression, by the way. Excuse me, I'm holding a colloquy with myself. I'll be with you in a moment. I think I'm going to use that. Anyway, it's a sort, uh, it is a sort of good smeagol, angry with a bad Gollum. The latter grows filled with hatred of the ring-bearer in longing to be ringmaster himself. Laid up in rock near gates, see great movements in and out. Explanation of why they had escaped the war movement. They lie up in day in beds of reeds, feeling of weight. Ring feels heavier and heavier on Frodo's neck as Mordor approaches. He feels the eye. Okay, so some of this stuff we can, we can begin to see. Right. Uh, you know, see, uh, we recognize, you know, much and we can see these, you know, these things 
being just taken up into the uh, ultimate text, the feeling of the eye, the weight of the ring, right, all that stuff. Um, the movements of armies in and out of the gates. They're not looking at, of course, constant movements of armies, but uh, but it's pretty clear that there's uh, that there's a pretty good flow in and out, or in chiefly, right? Of course, uh, as they're as they're standing there. But the colloquy, right? This already seems to be moving along, right? We now have this division between the 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 concept of the good smeagol, uh, which was not clearly in evidence at all before now seems to be um now seems to be popping up right um and the thing that was fascinating here to me is that it almost sounds like um yeah mike that's exactly what i was interested in too mike moore is also interested in the fact that it's smeagol who's the angry one right and he's angry at the bad golem um Exactly. Yeah. No, that's uh, uh, Mike. I think that's fascinating, isn't it? Um, The subject of the debate is not the two of them deciding what to do with Frodo. It's good Smeagol trying to tell bad Gollum to pipe down. So here's bad Gollum filled with hatred of the ring bearer and longing to be ringmaster. And there's good Smeagol trying to beat it down. And he's ticked off. Right. He's ticked off at the bad Gollum. Um, That's really different, right? And Lynn, that's a wonderful point. Lynn points out that uh, the, 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 the very significant, for the juxtaposition here between ring bearer and ring master, right? Huge gap, right? That's a, that's a, there's a, there's a world of difference between being the ring bearer and the ring master. Um, uh, and of course, you know, that's a, it's, it, that's like the nutshell version of Frodo's uh, hardest task, right? Remain the ring bearer without becoming the ring master, without seeking to become the ring master. Um, uh, but, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> okay, I will briefly acknowledge Arthur and Matthew, uh, your circus jokes vis a vis ring master. But anyway, uh, the anger comes from good Smeagol. And that seems to me, actually, the, the thing that fascinates me most about that is that this, has, this seems to swing Gollum further to the other side, right? At the beginning, Gollum was entirely on the one side, right? Just, he was just treacherous, straight up, all the way through, right? No sign of a good Smeagol at all, right, in, those, in that first outline. But now... The idea that goods that this is primarily good Smeagol trying to shout down the bad Gollum uh, and being angry at it seems to push the good Smeagol more in control, actually, to make him more prominent than he is in the published text. Um, it is not the good, the good Smeagol that wins the debate, and you do not get the sense from the colloquy as it is uh, as it is finally represented in the published text. Um, that colloquy does not sound like it is premised on the good Smeagol merely attempting to shut up the bad Gollum. He's resisting the bad Gollum, um, but kind of weakly and, uh, uh, you know, sort of retreating as the, as the conversation goes on. Um, so he's firmer in standing up to him at the beginning, but he's never just angry at him, right? The, the, the premise of it is never, um, is never just, him trying to get the bad golem to shut up. Um, 
So anyway, I, that's that's interesting. Stephen Cover says, is this the effect of eating Lembus? Well, you've got to wonder, right? Um, did Gollum eat the Lembus? And this is what happened, right? The good Smeago emerged as a consequence of that. That seems to me to be one implication. I mean, that seems to me a, a logical. I mean, you know, I'm not sure that it's true, but that does seem to be a logical reading of that reference to it doing him good earlier on. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's that's really that's really fascinating. And I, so again, I think that we can see we will see some continued development uh, where he's going to kind of dial this back a little bit, I think, um, or kind of come back more towards the center. But notice that even Gollum desiring the bad Gollum desiring to be ringmaster himself doesn't sound very radical to us, right? Because, of course, we're used to that. You know, this is going to manifest itself in the Gollum the Great discussion and, you know, the eat fish from the sea three times a day. But, so we're familiar with this concept, but remember how far away that is. Even when Gollum was stinker all the time, right, in that first projection in Tolkien's initial concepts, um, he was stinker all the time, but he, uh, like, his stinkitude was manifested in his desire to betray Frodo to the enemy, right? Uh, he was going to betray him to the Nazgul. That's plan A. That's why he was chuckling evilly when he found out that Frodo wanted to be taken uh, to Kirithungul, to the to the V path into Mordor, uh, because that's where he would have wanted to take him in order to betray him anyway, right? So um, that Gollum goes out of his way to betray Frodo to a Nazgul, is the initial story, right? Um, so that's already changed now. So even though we have Bad Gollum uh, still coming on, bad, the nature of Bad Gollum has changed. And that seems to me an important step that has been made in Tolkien's imagining Gollum's character and the nature of Gollum's sort of connection uh, to the ring. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Hillman wants to introduce the hashtag stinker all the time. Yeah, yeah, that would be a good hashtag. All right. Uh, more Gollum stuff. Gollum laughed. The dead marshes. Yes, yes, that is their name. Should not look in when the white eye is up. What are they? Who are they? asked Sam, shuddering and turning to Frodo, who came up behind him. I don't know, said Frodo. No, don't, master, said Sam. They're horrible. Nonetheless, Frodo crawled cautiously to the edge and looked. He saw pale faces. Deep underwater they looked, some grim, some hideous, some noble and fair, but all horrible, corrupted, sickly, rotting. Something we can't read. Frodo crawled back and hid his eyes. I don't know who they are, but I thought I saw men and elves and orcs all dead and rotten. Yes, yes, said Gollum, cackling, all dead and rotten. The dead marshes, men and elves and orcs. There was a great battle here long, long ago. Precious, yes, when Smeagol was young and happy long ago, before the precious came. Yes, yes. Um, Which means, by the way, that the ring would be, like, still warm from Isildur's finger when Deagle fishes it out, right? Uh, if that's the... If that's the, This is the passage I was talking about, with the, which uh, suggests the 500-year Third Age. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. Um, so... 
Okay. Two things that I want to focus on here. We've talked about the dead faces. We don't need to talk about that too much more here. Um, first, the thing with Sam and Frodo, right? You remember how it happens in the published text, right? Frodo sees the faces first, but off screen. The narrator's following Sam. Um, and he sees Frodo at one point standing there with slime dripping from his hands, right? He obviously has fallen and he's looked and he's seen the face, but he doesn't say anything. Frodo doesn't say anything, right? He's standing there kind of stunned with the, with the, with the slime dripping off his hands. And then Sam has the same experience. He falls forward on his hands and he looks into a pool and he sees the dead faces and he comments on it. Dead, dead faces, right? And Frodo says, yes, I've seen them, right? Um, this business of Sam seeing it first and trying to stop for, I, you know, I, I love that. No, don't, said Sam. They're horrible. Um, of course, I love this image of Sam trying to protect Frodo, uh, even just from the horror of the images. Uh, you know, he doesn't want his master to be exposed to that. Um, but, of course, remember that that gets turned around in the published text in a really kind of interesting way, right? Why didn't Sam, Frodo say anything about it? He saw them, Right. Why doesn't he say anything about it? And I'm wondering if he's trying to protect Sam, right? He doesn't want Sam to see the the, the faces. Um, but uh, so anyway, I, I thought that was... Uh, uh, I had never really thought too much about that question, like about Frodo's non-saying anything about the faces when he first saw them, seeing Sam's explicit motivation for trying to stop Frodo from seeing them uh, really kind of made me think about that a little bit. Um, now, I agree, Arthur, that Gollum is, seems fairly delighted about this, right? Um, Gollum's cackling about the death and rottenness uh, uh and I wonder, it's, is this just, like, that he thinks it's so cool? Or is this that he is amused by their reaction? I take it as the latter, right? Um, the fact that they're obviously horrified by um, these faces, he seems to find funny, right? Um, and... I'm not sure where that fits. Exactly. With Gollum as we're seeing him at this stage of the story. Um, the When Smeagol was young and happy long ago before the precious came, yes, yes, that's very good Smeagol, right? That's very piteous there. Um, very, very pity-inducing, right, at that moment. Um, but the cackle before that is really not. Um, is that what we're supposed to hear? Is that we're supposed to hear that sort of contrast? Uh, you know, sort of the two different sides of Gollum. Um, you know, that hard mocking edge, which is comfortable with death and horrible things and laughing at those who are not, right? Um, showing his own hardness of heart uh, and how the extent to which he's been inured to this kind of thing. Um you know, contrasting with his memories of being young and happy long ago and, and showing the, 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 the good Smeagol coming through there. Um, I think it's, I think it's, it's possible. Uh, 
It is conceivable, Lynn, that this is sort of nervous cackling, but I, I don't think so. And the main reason I don't think so is that he does. I don't see what he has to be nervous about. We know that he does quite like uh, the rotting corpses. In fact, he tried to reach them, right? Which Sam and Frodo don't seem at all tempted to do. And there's Sam's dark suspicion uh, that, of course, Gollum was trying to reach them in order to eat them, uh, which is really gross. And uh, I can't help but think that Sam is likely correct uh, about that. Um, yeah. And Ollie, that's a really cool observation, how uh, um, the that last sentence, uh, as Ollie says, the sentence seems to pivot uh, on the word precious. Um, uh, as if the, you know, the sort of the one... one uh, voice is addressing the other. I think it's a really interesting way of thinking of that. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, Brian, I think it's close. Brian says, does Gollum in get it, also get enjoyment from having knowledge that the hobbits don't seem to have and in resisting the temptation to look where the hobbits can't? I agree with the first half, but not the second half, Brian. I think that he is enjoying having knowledge that they don't have and being the one to be able to tell them of this and to be the, you know, the veteran who has seen before and is familiar with what they're just now seeing for the first time and being shocked by. That does seem to me to be very much involved in his cackling there. But I don't think it's about his resisting temptation. I think it's it's he, like they're squeamish and seeing the stuff and he's not. He doesn't care, right? It's not, a, it's not about temptation. Uh, he doesn't mind, right? Um... Uh, though perhaps Gollum, if I said that, would say to me, he doesn't know what we minds, does he, precious? Um, but uh, uh, but anyway, uh, he does not seem to mind. Um, anyway, uh, but the other thing, of course, that I wanted to point to, and Stephen, you were uh, talking about the white eye. Isn't that fascinating, right? I was, I was, I was fascinated by that. Um, the white eye is a name for the moon. It does draw a parallel to the to the great eye, Stephen. Um, it's kind of interesting that it's like the idea of the moon and the sun being the yellow eye and the white eye looking at you. Um, it does present this really interesting sort of worldview of Gollum's, right, with him sort of projecting the great eye of Sauron everywhere. Like the whole world is has you know the great eye looking at him and stuff. Um, that's that's really interesting. But of course, you know what it made me think of, and uh, you know, there's the question: Why does he change it? Right? Why does Tolkien change that? Because, of course, as you'll remember in the published text, it's the white face and the yellow face. Um, uh, <laughs> my my family, by the way, has taken to teasing me about this. Um, I uh, <clears throat> and and I, I I I really dislike the glaring sun. Hey, being out in the glaring sun, and uh, especially I think since I went balder and uh, and you know now I like burn on my poor scalp now more easily, and so I just I don't like being out in the in the blazing sun, and uh, and so you know whenever I'm like I'm like covering my eyes and and uh, uh, and complaining about the sun, my family will be like curse the yellow face. Anyway, um, Kate, that's exactly what I was thinking too. Stephen and Kate, um, it, it recalls Bilbo's riddle, right? An eye and a blue face said to an eye and a green face that the, the to, to, for him to call the sun the yellow eye um, 
it would have to mean one of two things, right? It would have to either mean uh, that he has adopted Bilbo's riddle as his vocabulary now. So when he goes out, he's just, he's, he's thinking of Bilbo's riddle. And so he calls it the LOI because that's what it was in Baggins's riddle. Right. And so he calls the moon, the white eye. Um, and uh, you know, it's, a. I don't know. I, I think I love that concept, right? The idea that Gollum has spent so long replaying the riddle game and the meeting with Baggins over and over and over in his head that now, like, that's his vocabulary, right? So he calls it the yellow eye from now on. Um, I think that's really neat. I really, really like that. I don't know if it's if it had anything to do with why Tolkien changed it, if he decided he didn't want Gollum to be basically using Bilbo's vocabulary. Um, or, of course, because if you think about it the other way, if it, this is Gollum's vocabulary, if he's always called the sun the yellow eye, why on earth you know, did it take him so long to guess that riddle? Right? Uh, that, would have been, that would have been the easiest chestnut of all for, for Gollum if he'd routinely called, uh, uh, called, called the, 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 the sun the, the yellow eye. Um, but, um, anyway, I, 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 you know, we don't know exactly why he made that change. Um, but, um, yeah. And Kate points out that when he, when he changes it, when Tolkien changes eye to face, he does put in the reference to, uh, to the fish riddle. And Ollie was just pointing, uh, that out too. Um, so that we, this idea of Gollum continuing to sort of obsess over Bilbo's riddles, um, or rather of the riddle game with Bilbo. Because, of course, there is a major difference, right, guys, that uh, the inclusion of the fish riddle, or really the elaboration of the fish riddle, it does suggest, uh, similarly, that he has been kind of dwelling on this, right? So that now it's like, if I ask the fish riddle again, I could do it even better, right? He's, 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 he's been rehashing the riddles over and over. Um, but of course, it's it's different, right? He's not uh, he's not obsessing about Bilbo's riddles. He's uh, uh, elaborating his own. Um, yeah, and Brian, of course, he didn't have any reason to call the sun or moon anything while living in the cave. Um, and we're told by the Hobbit narrator that he'd almost forgotten the sun. Um, Gandalf says uh, this uh, says that as well. That's a quote from Gandalf. Um, but you know, he he could barely remember it. Uh, such forgotten things as sun on the daisies. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. Um, Tara, I don't know what you, I don't think you see anything, uh, in the water when the yellow eye is up. Um, this is again, what led me to the Minas Morgul thing, right? Cause I don't think it's just a, you need light to see something. And when you see something, you see the corruption. Uh, I think it's a moon thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, uh, so I like the yellow eye. I think it's pretty cool. Uh, but uh, anyway, there it is. Let's look at the song. Okay. The cold, hard lands to feet and hands, they are unkind. The wind is shrill. The stones are chill. There's naught to find. Our heart is set on water wet in some deep pool. Oh, how we wish to taste of fish so sweet and cool. Okay, so you may remember, in the published text, his song goes, The cold, hard lands, they bite our hands, they gnaws our feet. The rocks and stones are like old bones, all bare of meat. Uh, But, 
Stream and pool is sweet and cool, so nice for feet. Um, and now we wish, and then he stops and says, what does we wish? And that's when he segues into the fish, uh, uh, into the fish rhythm. So, or the fish, uh, poem, um, the cold, hard lands to feet and hands. They are unkind. The wind is shrill. The stones are chill. There's not to find one simple, uh, one simple observation about that first stanza, um, and this may seem simple, but uh, the sentence structure is a great deal more complex. It's more convoluted in this version of the song, right? The cold, hard lands to feet and hands, they are unkind, right? That <clears throat> inversion of, you know, the putting the two feet in hands, they are unkind, right? Inverting the, uh, the, the prepositional phrase with the, the, the subject and verb verb there, the, the cold hard lands, they are right with sort of the, 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 the use of the appositive with the pronoun there. It's fine, right? There's nothing super weird about it, but it is formalized a little bit. It's complicated, Right? That's not how Gollum normally talks. The cold, hard lands to feet and hands, they are unkind. Right? That's nothing like his normal speech. The wind is shrill, the stones are chill, there's naught to find. Right? Um, even just thinking about it that way, right? If you wanted to read this in like a serious poetry reading voice, you kind of could get away with it. Right? It would sound a little bit strange, right? but it would kind of work. The cold, hard lands, to feet and hands, they are unkind, right? You could do it, whereas you couldn't do that with Gollum's final song, right? The cold, hard lands, they bites our hands, they gnaws our feet, right? It just doesn't work. Uh, So he kind of gets Gollum's voice uh, better, or rather the song... uh, seems to reflect Gollum's voice more directly and therefore sounds a little bit more spontaneous. And you remember, it's how it comes along, right? Um, you know, we're told that he says, you know, he, he keeps saying these things until it becomes a kind of song, right? Uh, and, uh, um, but this this seems to be more a more a like I am composing verse here and I'm gonna invert the word order so that I can arrange I can, you know, arrange my rhymes appropriately. Our heart is set on water wet in some deep pool. Even that doesn't sound now <laughs> I agree that uh <laughs> Jennifer says only Tolkien could get away with water wet. <laughs> right. Uh yeah, yeah. It's true, um, but um, but even there, our heart is set on water wet in some deep pool. Yeah, that, even that doesn't sound like Gollum too much to me. Oh, how we wish to taste of fish so sweet and cool. Um, that last part sounds much more Gollumish to me. But even there, to taste of fish, seriously, to taste of fish. Um, Again, that's also still not how... Uh, oh, how we wish! 
sounds like Gollum, chiefly, I suppose, because he's using first-person plural. But, uh, um, but it does still sort of sound like Gollum. Um, uh, yeah, the tone and phrasing is not the Smeagol we know and love, Arthur, I agree. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Tara doesn't think that not is in uh, Gollum's vocabulary. Yeah, I mean, not that I think it's impossible, but but yeah, again, there's there's not to find. Uh, just the, again, that does not sound like what Gollum would say. So, I think what we have here is the the like the subject is Gollum's subject, right? Um, but the voice isn't quite right. And that... That really interests me. I wish we got more of... Of course, this is one of the things that I would wish for, right? Um, oh, how we wish... Uh, oh, how we wish for more publication of the workings of the early drafts of these poems before we get the final version, right? Christopher keeps telling us uh, there were many workings and, you know, revisions and crossings out, but here's what it came out to, right? Or he'll give us a couple stages of it. Uh, And, you know, like at least we did get, remember those like five or six versions of um, the uh, uh, Seek for, no, not the Seek for for the Sword that was broken, Bilbo's poem, the uh, Aragorn's name poem, right? Um, uh, you know, whatever that poem is that I'm totally blanking on the line of now. But you remember uh, going over six versions of it if you read The Return of the Shadow with me. So, um, uh, anyway, what I would be interested to see, though, is if this is a common pattern. Um, one of the things that you can notice, uh, you know, that's so striking, that I have always found so striking, even of the... Uh, um, all that glitters. Thank you so much. I don't know why I was blanking on the first line of that poem. Yes, the uh, all that is gold does not glitter poem. Anyway, um, one of the things that I've always found so striking about Tolkien's verse, especially in The Hobbit, but even um, you know, even in The Lord of the Rings as well, is what I've often called like the the humility of Tolkien's verse. Right, that he. Uh, includes poems, but he includes poems which are not very good poems, right? Or rather, that are, like, deliberately in really crude voices. They're they're cunningly constructed, but again, you can't exactly do a poetry reading of these, right? Uh, the Goblin Songs, of course, are, are, are one really good example of this from The Hobbit, right? Even the Elves' tra la la song is another different kind of example of the same thing, or the Barrel Song um, uh, by the Elves. Uh, again, this none of that is like earnest poetry, uh, but he, you know, at the risk of being considered a, a, a childish and simplistic poet, which many do, in fact, consider him to be, um, he does do these poems in the voices and fitting the occasions of the songs as they're sung uh, in the uh, in the story. And I wonder how many of them. Um, uh, I wonder how many of them emerged like this. You, you see what I mean? That is concept first, and then we make it fit the voice. Um, you know, it's hard because some of them, of course, some of the poems pre-existed the story. This is especially true in The Lord of the Rings. More true in The Lord of the Rings than it is in The Hobbit. 
Um, in fact, I can't think of a single example of a poem in The Hobbit which pre-existed the story. I think there's a 0% recycling rate. As far as I know. For any of the poems in The Hobbit. I'm pausing and saying this really slowly, hoping that uh, exceptions will occur to me before I finish my sentence. Oh, the riddles. Well, well... No, not really, Bruce. I mean, he made them up. I don't think that he had made them up. Like, my point is, he's not taking poetry that he'd written 20 years before and putting it into The Hobbit. He does that all over the place in The Lord of the Rings, right? Um, That's where the Man in the Moon poem comes from. That's where the Troll poem comes from. That's in a really indirect sense where the Oliphant poem comes from, though not really. Um, the Oliphant poem is really more inspired by the uh, the his old Oliphant poem, um, or very loosely suggested by the old one. Um, anyway, so there's there's uh, there are a bunch of examples um, in the uh, in the Lord of the Rings <clears throat> where he's recycling poems that he'd written decades before. I mean, some of those poems he wrote 30 years prior to putting them into the narrative. Um, And again, we don't see that kind of thing going on in The Hobbit. Anyway, sorry, getting distracted. Point is, um, it's really fascinating to see what seems that, that in as much as this verse here gives us a glimpse of an intermediate stage or an early stage of Gollum's song, what we're seeing is content before style, right? It's not Gollum's voice that comes through first, and then the content gets shifted around. It's the content. Uh, It's the, in a sense, the sort of the the ideas, the themes, the narrative concept of Gollum's song, which comes first, and then it's adapted to Gollum's language. And it's 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 you know smegolified, as we, um, as we, as we move forward. yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> Stephen is asking if I don't think that Chip the Glasses and Crack the Plates was written when he was a wee lad doing household chores. Can't rule it out, but we don't have any evidence that it it, uh, it pre-existed. Might have done, who knows? Can't rule it out, but... Um, yeah, yeah. Um... I do agree with you, Mike. Uh, no, it's not Mike. Kate, um, that um, so sweet and cool is the line of all of them that sounds most Gollum like, right? Um, the cold hard lands, that's pretty Gollum like too. First line and last line, right? First line and last line are the most Gollum like, I think, the most Smeagolified. Uh, of uh, of of all of them, um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Let's see. Any other observations about this? The structure is the same. The rhyme scheme that is is the same, 
right? The cold, hard lands, they bites our hands, they gnaws our feet. The rocks and stones are like old bones, all bare of meat. Uh, same rhythm, same, um, same rhyme scheme. But stream and pool, wet and cool, so nice for feet. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that I was just thinking of the, the kind of the metrical shift. I'm like, but wait, aren't I remembering that there's a metrical shift, that it shifts from IMs to trochees? But no, it's when he does the, it's when he does the, the fish uh, poem that it shifts. So, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so that's not relevant here. Yeah, Kate says that the subject of the second verse seems to be a bit of homesickness for his old home. Yes, some deep pool, right? Any deep pool, right? Um, it's a little surprising, really, Kate, that he would have homesickness for his pool under the Misty Mountains. I mean, it's not that I doubt that that might kind of seem like the good old days compared to now, right? Um, now that he's been deprived of the precious, he'd look back at any time with the precious as better in some sense, or in some moods anyway. Uh, but it's not like he was especially happy there. We get nostalgia for the old days before the precious came, right? Um, but uh, uh, but we don't get it. Uh, I, I don't think we ever catch him being nostalgic for the Misty Mountains before. Uh, but that's a really interesting point. Um, yeah. We only wish to catch a fish so juicy sweet. Um, again, we only wish to catch a fish so juicy sweet. Uh, I can think of the syntax, syntactical difference between that uh, and these last lines there. Um, yeah, good. Um, <laughs> too many syllables, Tom. Tom is composing new verses. All I want is a pool somewhere far away from the white eyes stare. Yeah, it works, it works, but it's, it's too many feet. Too many feet for this song, though. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, okay, but let's keep going, because I'm running out of time. All right, this is Christopher's introduction to the, uh, uh, to the Black Gate is Closed chapter. Here I restrict my account to the portion of the new chapter that corresponds to the Black Gate is Closed. This was a part of the narrative that largely wrote itself, and there is not a great deal to record of its development. It was achieved, also, in a much more orderly fashion than had been the case for a long time. Here there is a continuous, and for, the most of, and for most of its length readily legible, initial draft, which extends, in fact, to the point where the Black Gate is closed, ends in the two towers, and then becomes a brief outline that brings Frodo, Sam, and Gollum to the crossroads and up the stair of Kirith Ungol, showing that at that time my father had no notion of what would befall them on the southward road. He headed this draft... Kirith Ungol, the original title of The Passage of the Marshes, sure that he could get them there within the compass of this new chapter. 
but Kirathungal now bore a significant difference, a different significance, rather, uh, from what it had when he had given it to the previous chapter, right? Kirathungal now no longer the Black Gate, no longer the primary entrance into Mordor. Now it's the side passage, right, with the stair uh, and everything, though still with spiders in. Now, um, so his original thought, right, that the the chapter which is the Black Gate is closed, uh, he's going to get them from the Dead Marshes all the way up into Kirathungal in one chapter, right? That's really great. Uh, the thing that I love about this is I don't just mean to, like, tease Tolkien in retrospect about what he thought the chapters were going to be. Again, the reason that I find this so delightful, the reason that um, uh, that I really... Uh, love these references is I love seeing the story unfolding so spontaneously before Tolkien. I love how delightfully unsuspicious he is of what lies ahead, right? Uh, how, 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 how delightfully ignorant he is uh, of what lies in wait. Um, he has no idea, clearly not yet any idea, uh, that uh, there is a Gondorian captain lying in ambush along that road down to the south, um, and Tolkien himself has still not yet detected the ambush, right? Um, Faramir is going to appear, and he does not yet have any idea that Faramir is going to appear. But at the same time, we get a contrast, right? Um, that is, while we are reminded of, um, of Tolkien's, you know, ignorance of where the story is going to go, we also get... Um, a reminder of how quickly this is writing itself, right? So, uh, his laboring at the beginning, you know, his he was. We saw how he was struggling with the story in the attempt to escape the Emin Wheel. Is having a really hard time hashing all that out. Now he's hit a smooth patch, right? The story is unfolding itself, and I, I think those those two things seem to go together, right? The fact that this story is unfolding itself and he's he it, everything is going smoothly now and he feels confident in what's ahead, not having any idea that it's in fact going to be, what, three more chapters? Four more chapters before he gets to the stairs of Kirithungal? Um, in fact, uh, when it really gets to it. But again, those two things seem to be, uh, seem to be connected. Right, that uh, when he is in this kind of a flow, these things come up, and and you know, captains of Gondor jump out of the bushes at him, uh, and he really doesn't have any idea. Um, but uh, no, Bruce, I don't recall any reference to uh, a brother. But I don't think Boromir ever did have a brother. Um, like the references to, that Boromir makes to uh, the vision coming to his brother. Um, that's retcon. I'm pretty sure that doesn't happen in the in the early Council of Elrond's stuff there. Um, yeah. Anyway, okay. So speaking of uh, things going smoothly, the thing that wasn't going, the story was going along smoothly. The conception of Mordor and how to get into Mordor not going so smoothly. So let's uh, let's let's sort this out. Uh, okay. So this was the most surprising bit. On the far east horn of the gates is a tall white tower, Minas Ithil, now Minas Morgul, which guards the pass. It was originally built by the men of Gondor to prevent Sauron breaking out and was manned by the guards of Minas Ithil, but it, soon fe- it fell soon into his hands. It now prevented any coming in. It was manned by orcs and evil spirits. It had been called Neleg Thilim, changed to Neleglos, 
the gleaming change to the white tooth. Um, okay. Uh, so... I have to admit, when I was preparing for class tonight and I, and I read this passage, I was like, wait. I, you know, I, I had this moment where I'm like, am I going crazy? Am I just forgetting something? Was Minas Morgul always in the north, <laughs> right? Did I just assume that it was, uh, you know, on the on the western side facing us, Gilead was, you know, so I had to, like, go back and look things up and be like, because, you know, sometimes it happens, right? Sometimes you, you just sort of take for granted what things are like in the published text. And, and so, uh, but, but anyway, I'm like, okay, no. This is new. <laughs> this is, in fact, a change. There was explicit reference before to the fact that Minas Mithil was... Uh, Minas Ithil. I, uh, combining Morgul and Ithil. Um, that Minas Ithil was across from Osgiliath, right, um, on the western side. So this is, in fact, him choosing to shift it, right? Um, he wants to make it uh, up in the north. So, by the way, you see what this suggests about Isildur, right? Um which is kind of awesome, actually. Where does Isildur decide he's going to build his city, right? When Isildur comes and he's like, all right, Tower of the Moon, where should I put the Tower of the Moon? Oh, I know, guarding the only pass out of Mordor, right? Okay, Sauron, if you come out of Mordor, you come through me, right? That was Isildur uh, when he made Minas Ithil. Um, pretty gutsy. Now, building Minas Ithil on the, you know, on the slopes of the the Mountain of Shadow was pretty gutsy anyway uh, by uh, Isildur, but that's a whole new level of uh, sort of personal responsibility, right? Um, But uh, anyway, uh, so the first thing that happens here, so Kirithungal was the name of the pass with spiders in, and it was the main entrance that was up here, right? And Minas Morgul was around the corner and down to the south. I didn't, like, just assume that. That was, in fact, true. So that in that very first outline that he that we talked about in the Treason of Isengard, they were going to come down to this pass, and then Frodo was going to get attacked by spiders, and he was going to get captured by the orcs and dragged, and they were going to haul him down around uh, and south to Minas Morgul, and that's where Sam was going to follow and then rescue him. Um, so... There wasn't the uh, the tower up above, so he's deciding now. So one impulse here is let's bring these two things together, right? Let's bring Minas Morgul and Kirithungul together. Before they were separate, now uh, Kirithungul is going to be the pass underneath Minas Morgul, right? Uh, with the tower coming up above, and it's going to have orcs and evil spirits in it, and it's going to be scary, and it's going to be called the White Tooth. Um, it is interesting, Tony, that he associates Minas Ithil and Orthanc both with names that mean teeth. Yeah, we got uh, uh, Mount Fang, right? Um, I agree. Okay, so then we get, you know, in Gaum's suggestion about how they get in, we can see this. The famous pass of Enindur changed to Morenin, Morenin the Gates of Mordor, was guarded by two towers. The Teeth of Mordor, Nelig Morn. Nelig Mel changed to Nelig Mürn, built by Gondorians long ago, now ceaseless manned. Owing to ceaseless passage of arms, they dare not they dare not try to enter, so they turn west and south. Gollum tells them of Kirithungol, 
beneath shadow of Minas Morgul. It is a high pass. He does not tell them of the spiders. They creep in to Minas Morgul. Okay, so now we decide there are going to be two ways into Mordor. Right? There was only one way in before. It was Kirithungal. It was the main path. It was full of spiders. Now we have two paths in. Right, One which is called Mornenin, the Gates of Mordor, and the other of which is Kirithungal, which is full of spiders. And it's still so... So Minas Morgul, Kirithungal was up in the north, Minas Morgul was down in the west. Right, Minas Morgul moves up so that it joins itself with, with Kirithungal in the north. Now Minas Morgul has moved back to its original position down in the west, but it's taken Kirithungal with it, right? So now Kirithungal is down on the west, and there's a new pass up in the north with a new name, Morenin, Mornenin, rather, the Gates of Mordor. Now, uh, the cool thing to notice here is that uh, the Gates of Mordor, that's metaphorical, right? There's not a literal gate, it's called the Gates of Mordor because that's how you get in. But it's just a pass. It's just a pass. It's a gap in the mountains. It's guarded by the Towers of the Teeth. The Teeth of Mordor, right, are there. As soon as Minas Morgul decamps, we, 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 we still want there to be teeth there, right? Uh, so, uh, so Tony will notice that it, it, Minas Morgul has moved out again, and it took Kirithungal with it, but it left the teeth behind, right? It left, it left the tooth name behind. Um, anyway, so, okay. So, but there's no gate. It's just a, it's just a pass. Um, the, the towers were built by the Gondorians long ago, but now they're manned, um, and there's ceaseless passage of arms. So they don't get in. Why can't they get in? Not because it's impenetrable. But almost for the opposite reason, it's way too penetrable. It's being penetrated all the time by armies. So it's not that it's 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 unopenable. It's uh, the problem is that it's too crowded, right? Um, they, so they 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 don't go in through the gates of Mordor through the pass called the gates of Mordor for traffic related reasons, right? Um, it's too congested there. They need to go around by Kirithungal down in the south. Okay. All right. But then, Jennifer, exactly as you were foreboding, the non-existent gates become existent gates pretty quickly, exactly as the gates, the metaphorical gates of Mordor, become the literal gates of Mordor. The paragraph beginning, Across the mouth of the pass from cliff to cliff, the Dark Lord had built a rampart of stone. In it there was a single gate of iron, and upon its battlement sentinels paced unceasingly, was first written thus, both in draft and manuscript. No rampart or wall or bars of stone or iron were laid across the the moran... For the rock on either side was bored and tunneled into a hundred caves and maggot holes. A host of orcs lurked there. Now, I have to admit, I don't understand the logic of that sentence as it first appeared both in draft and manuscript. Um... So the reason that no rampart wall or bars of stone or iron were laid across the Moranon is because the rock on either side was bored and tunneled into a hundred caves and maggot holes. Why do the caves and maggot holes preclude a rampart and gate? I, that I, I don't fully understand that. Um, meaning what? Like because there's so much traffic that I. I 
too many ways through anyway. Stephen Wright, why bother building a wall when there's a hundred holes that they can get through anyway? Uh, maybe, but I but see, there's still the 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 hundred caves and maggot holes stay. There's still maggot holes all over the place. Um, that's where they emerge. The orcs emerge from when uh, when it's time for the battle at the Black Gates. So, um, yeah, I don't. Um, uh, I don't, I don't, I don't really get it. Um, yeah, Bruce is suggesting there's no need for a gate because no army could get past all the orcs. That's the only thing I can think of too, Bruce. That it's just superfluous, right? Um, no rampart or wall or bars of stone were laid because they weren't necessary. In as much as the rock on either side was bored and tunneled into a hundred caves and maggot holes, so because there's a host of orcs there, I mean, like, who's going to sneak in? Why, why build walls when you can just crush them with tens of thousands of orcs? Um, okay. Anyway, this was changed in the manuscript as soon as written to the text of the two towers, introducing the rampart of stone and the single gate of iron, and it is thus seen that up to this point the black gates was the name of the pass itself. So also, at the beginning of the passage, where the two towers has between these arms, there was a deep defile. This was Kirith Gorgor, the haunted pass, the entrance to the land of the enemy. Both draft and manuscript have between, between these arms was a long defile. This was the Moranon, the Black Gate, the entrance to the land of the enemy. When the rampart and iron gate had been introduced, this was changed in the manuscript to this was Kirith Gorgor, the dreadful pass, the entrance to the land of the enemy. So, um, the pass, the gate, was originally not a gate. It was the pass, right? The Moranon was the pass. The pass is still there. The pass still has a name, right? But we're going to change it to Kirith Gorgor once we actually have a gate that we're going to call the Black Gate. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to me. Here's one of the things that I find interesting about it. Black Gate. Doesn't that sound like one of those Hobbitish names? I don't mean ho- names like you find in the Shire. I mean names like you find in The Hobbit, right? Like Lake Town, or Lonely Mountain, or Dale, or Bywater, right? Um, those names which just, just just say what the thing is, right? Um, Black Gate kind of sounds like that, doesn't it? So it's interesting to find that that's in fact not how it comes like, okay? Uh, in front of Mordor, there's a Black Gate, and I think I'll name it the Black Gate, right? That's not how it happened. In fact, it was much more complicated than that. It was called the Black Gate metaphorically, right? Because uh, it was neither a gate nor black, right? But it was called the Black Gate because it was the gate into the black land, and so it was the black. So it starts off as this sort of complex metaphor, and then it just becomes a literal Black Gate, right? So that's, it's, uh, it gets, uh, 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 simple. So, uh, Brendan, does Gorgor mean haunted or dreadful in the end? Yeah, yeah, it does exactly. Just like Gorg, uh, um, Gorgoroth, um, the, uh, the arid Gorgoroth, right? The mountains of horror in um, uh, Beleriand, right? Where uh, you know Sheila used to live before she decamped. Um, back in the old day. Um, so, uh, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and Mike, yeah, you're right. We get like, we get black gates and black riders and white hands and white eyes and white tooth. Yeah. The, the blacks and whites are, are important, right? Uh, there is a lot of black and white, uh, in Tolkien's work. It just doesn't work like people, uh, generally say. Um, Arthur says that inquiring minds want to know what the maggot folk of Mordor are. 
Um, I think that he primarily used that metaphor of maggot folk in order to give the leeway for future video game developers to have slimy uh, sort of uh, uh, invertebrate monsters if they chose to take it in that direction. Um, That might not be the thing that Tolkien was actually thinking of when he said that. But no, I mean, I think it's just a metaphor. Like, just as maggots burrow into meat, um, the orcs are the maggot folk of Mordor. I don't think that there's a distinction. I think it's that he's comparing them to maggots like they come out of maggot holes um, because they're nasty and gross and they burrow into things um, uh, and are associated with death, Mike. Yes, exactly. But... um, uh, anyway, yeah. But, Kate, yes, I agree. Even the other names which sound more complicated do all translate to simple things. The only difference between uh, many of the other names and those names in The Hobbit are that in The Hobbit they're given in English, whereas in other ones they're given in, in, in Elvish, right? Um, yes, yes. Like Stoneland uh, and Spider Pass. Uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Um Anyway, okay, so what was... Oh, yeah, that was, that was it. Okay, so now we're... So we've got... The, the Black Gate is now taking shape, right? So we've got the Black Gate, we've got the Morana, we've got the Towers of the Teeth. We have removed spiders, so the, the, the only pass into Mordor is no longer infested with spiders. That was why we didn't need a gate before, right? Because it was chock full of poisonous spiders, giant poisonous spiders, so who needs a gate when you've got a whole bunch of poisonous spiders? Like, their webs were blocking the whole thing. In fact, it was obviously a sort of a traffic obstruction, and it was kind of difficult to see how uh, Sauron would actually use this as a point of egress for his armies, because it was so full of uh, spiders and spider webs previously. But, um... Uh, yes, Bruce, I do agree, absolutely. Uh, Bruce Heitbrink is exactly right when he says that those holes, those maggot holes around the Black Gate clearly would be nasty, dirty, wet holes filled with the ends of wo- uh, worms and an oozy smell. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Um, anyway, uh, so back to back to Kirithungal then, as we're trying to figure out Kirithungal, Minas Morgul, we've now... Clearly associated them, and we've brought Kirithungal south with Minas Morgul, um, but we still have to sort out uh, their exact geographical connection to each other. Not to mention the fact that we still have to figure out what's going to go on with the betrayal and Frodo's capture. Those were two, you know, that Gollum is going to betray him is plan A. That Frodo is going to get captured, poisoned by a spider, and then captured by orcs. Also plan A, right? But how is that going to work out? How is that going to fit into the new story and the new geography? Um, And, of course, how are we going to get out of this as he never did succeed in getting uh, them out of it before? Frodo makes up his mind. He agrees to take the south way. As soon as dusk falls, they start. Needing speed, they use the road, though fearful of meeting soldiers on it, hurrying to the muster of the Dark Lord. Gollum says it is twenty leagues, perhaps, to the crossroads in the wood. They made all the speed they could. The land climbs a little. They see Anduin below them, gleaming in the moon. Good water? At, l- at last, late on the third day of their daylight journey, changed to night of journey from Moranon, they reach the crossroads and pass out of the wood. See the moon shine on Minas Ithil, Minas Morgul. Pass up first stair safely, but tunnel is black with webs of spiders. Force way and get up second stair. 
the had reached Kirithungal, spiders are aroused and hunt them. They are exhausted. Okay, so this is that this his first outline of the south of the southern passage, right now. Um, Faramir still has not appeared, right? Um, but of course, he's not writing out the narrative yet. He's still just projecting ideas, and what he's projecting is still just <clears throat> what's going to happen at point B, right? Um, he's um, he's he's just he's still thinking about that past, about the betrayal, and about the relationship with Minas Morgul. So the stairs have come in now. So Kirith Ungol is no longer a major pass through the mountains, a major gap in the mountains, which it was originally. Um, now that's Kirith Gorgor. So we get the stairs introduced here. Um, they're seeing the city of Minas Morgul from a distance with the moon shining on it, but they're not going to go in. Uh, they're going to go around it, but they have to go into the valley of it. So they're near it. Um, from what angle are they seeing the moon shine on it? As far as I know, they're still looking up at it, right? It, remember, Kirithungal was in the shadow of Minas Morgul. It was looming up above it. With the stairs, do we have, um, do we have them yet climbing up above Minas Morgul, Minas Morgul down in the valley, and them climbing up above it? I don't think so yet, unless I'm misremembering something. I think they're still climbing up towards it. There's still a tower up on top of the pass, and that tower is Minas Morgul. Um, So they're coming near to Minas Morgul. The idea that they're going to get captured, and they're going to be put in Minas Morgul, and and, and Frodo's going to get captured, and he's going to get put in Minas Morgul, still seems to be plan A. Right, or rather, that was Plan A, and that still seems to be he hasn't uh, fallen back on uh, on Plan B here yet. Uh, Christopher, of course, uh, points to a, a fair bit of uh, of uncertainty uh, about whether or not, um, uh, like, when the tower, the concept of the Tower of Kirithungal as a separate entity, really emerged. Um, you know that it's not really clear. Uh, when exactly that idea uh, kind of emerged. Um, Jennifer, there is yet, as yet, we've seen no evidence of Shelob, right? No evidence that there is a singular great spider. We're just having a bunch of spiders. Now, I don't know that they're necessarily little. I mean, they're, of course, big compared to normal spiders, but are they bigger than the Mirkwood spiders? Um, I don't think so. You know... The word aroused reminds me of the of the of the Mirkwood spiders, right? They were remember how the elves were angry at the dwarves for, for rousing the spiders with their din and clamor? Um they were waking up the spiders. They were stirring up the spiders. Um uh, Frodo and Sam go in and they stir up the spiders in the same kind of way, right? So I am, yes, definitely getting a Mirkwood spider vibe uh, from this whole thing here. The spiders in the Kirithungal that we saw in the old outline, um, you know, back in the, the story for Scene from Lorien, those seemed a little more intense than the Mirkwood spiders. And we're not getting any kinds of descriptions. We're just that it's black with their webs and whatever. 
and that they're still plural is really all we have. Um, but again, this idea of like the spiders is being kind of dormant until they come in and then they all get stirred up sounds kind of Mirkwoodish to me. Um, yeah, yeah. I agree, Christy. It is fascinating that uh, uh, she says proper characterization of a single spider is exponentially more terrifying than multiple spiders. It's true, right? It kind of seems like it shouldn't be, but you're absolutely right. Shelob is way more terrifying uh, than the hordes of Mirkwood spiders. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, and Jennifer, I agree. It does. It's not clear what Gollum's plan is. The only hint we get, Jennifer, is that fact, uh, what was that here? Um, or no, it was about, well, I'm forgetting, where Gollum, yeah, here, he does not tell them of the spiders, right? So Gollum knows there's spiders, but he's keeping the spiders to himself, right? Uh, that's the only indicator that we have that he still plans to betray them, and the spiders are like the mechanism of betrayal, right? That he's going to use the spiders to betray. That's the only hint that we have that that's still really operative. But remember, when the spiders were poisoning Frodo in the first version, Gollum was busy herring off to go tell the Nazgul about it, right? So they were part of the mechanism of betrayal, but they, he, was not, he, was, he, was, he wasn't betraying Frodo to the spiders. He was betraying them betraying him to the Nazgul. And the spiders were just keeping him occupied while he did that. While he, Gollum, did that. Um, now, obviously, I think we, we've moved past already Gollum betraying Frodo to the enemy, right? He's clearly not going to go running to the Nazgul now, it seems. Um, and yet, it's not yet clear that the he sees the spiders as his allies in that same kind of way. Um, okay. One more point, and this is another point at which I'm going to at least again suggest a different interpretation than Christopher Tolkien's here. I'm always so nervous about doing that because, again, like, he knows 50 times more than I do. So, um, And I'm not just trying to be humble about that or something or just trying to elevate Christopher because he's Tolkien's son. I mean, what he's saying in these texts is only the tip of the iceberg of all of the things that he has seen and, and judged from all of the manuscripts that he's seen. Remember, he's only telling us about a portion of what he has. So, um, uh, you know, uh, me saying, oh, but I think your reading here is inaccurate is uh, based on much weaker data, or much less data anyway than he has. But anyhow, okay. However this may be, and leaving open the question of whether at this stage my father had already decided that Kirith Ungol was guarded by its own tower, this is where he was just talking about how it's unclear whether or not the tower up at the top is Minas Morgul or what. It would be interesting to know whether that decision had been taken when he introduced into the manuscript Gollum's references to the Silent Watchers. So remember, Gollum warns them about the Silent Watchers, right? Um, uh when he tells them about the Southwood in that like in that discussion before the Black Gate, right? Um, he talks about the Silent Watchers being there in Minas Morgul. The Watchers, called the Sentinels, had already appeared in the story foreseen from Lorien. There, of course, they were the Sentinels of Minas Morgul. Here, too, Gollum is speaking of Minas Morgul. At this point in the chapter, he has not even mentioned the existence of Kirithungul. It would seem rather off 
that my father should bring in these references to the silent watchers of Minas Morgul if he had already decided that the actual encounter with silent watchers should be at the Tower of Kirith And one might suspect, therefore, that when he wrote them into the text, the idea of that tower had not yet arisen. But this is the merest conjecture. Okay, so let me... Let me try to reproduce, because it's hard. I'm ripping this paragraph out of context here. Okay. So, first, let us remember, in the story foreseen from Lorien, which we read in the Treason of Isengard, remember that when Sam rescues Frodo from Kir... Um, not Kirithungle, from uh, Minas Morgul, right? He... The, the, the Sentinels, right? Um, the, the, the Watchers, the two statues with the f- will... Who, that he has to break in going out. We got that scene, right? They are guarding the exit to Minas Morgul. Um, and those are the silent watchers, Christopher Tolkien tells us, right? Um, and they had, so they had already appeared. So the rationale here... Um, the rationale here is that the Silent Watchers are the Sentinels at the gate. And they're the Sentinels at the gate of Minas Morgul already, right? In the initial visit to Minas Morgul, they were already there. Tolkien is going to shift them upstairs, right? We're going to put them at the Tower of Kirithungul eventually. As we know, that's going to be where Sam is going to have that same sequence of having to break the will of the Silent Sentinels that are guarding the gate to the Tower of Kirithungul. Um... But originally, those things lived in Minas Morgul, and those are the Silent Watchers. So if Gollum is saying that the Silent Watchers are in Minas Morgul, down in the valley, then that suggests that the Tower of Kirithungul hadn't been built yet. Because eventually, or in Tolkien's mind, it hadn't been built. Because when the new tower up on top, when we get the proliferation of towers, when we're going to build the second tower up on top, or rather, we're going to keep the concept of a tower up on top, we're going to, but it's not going to be Minas Morgul anymore. Minas Morgul is going to be in the valley, but we're going to keep the tower up on top, and it's going to be the new tower, the Tower of Kirith We're going to move the Silent Watchers up to there. So since Gollum says that the Silent Watchers are down in Minas Morgul, that hasn't happened yet. That's his whole argument here, as far as I understand it. Now, okay. Um, Here's my number one objection to this. Or rather, it's not exactly an objection. I just feel like, when I read this argument, I feel like raising my hand and being like, um, Christopher, sir... What if the Silent Watchers that Gollum is talking about are not the same as the Sentinels at the gate? Um, Need they be necessarily the same? Gollum, when talking about the Silent Watchers, seems to be describing, like, lookout things. The Sentinels at the gate as they're described in Minas Morgul back in the story foreseen from Lorien, they're not watching the valley. Like, when you are on the road on the way to Minas Morgul, those sentinels, they're staring in, right? They're focused on the gate. Their job is to keep people going in and out, or at least going out, right? Um, They're not lookouts. 
when Gollum is describing the silent watchers, he seems to be talking about a more of a lookouty thing than a gate uh, guardian thing, right? Um, anyway, so I would at least want to suggest the idea that the silent that it's this is not just a question of saying so sentinels equals silent watchers and the silent watchers are being shifted around right that they're being that they they've been so they will get eventually shifted from Minas Morgul up to the tower of Kirathungul but Gollum is still going to say that they're down in the valley right and that that's what i guess a mistake or something but see i don't I don't buy that. I think there can still be silent watchers, right? Um, remember that it's the silent... There's the other reason, of course, that I think of the silent watchers as more um, lookout-type things than guardian-type things is what Gorbag says about the silent watchers in his conversation with Shagrat, right? Their silent watchers reported uh, that there were spies, Right, they were seen. I mean, the the three of them were seen by the Silent Watchers. Um, so, um, I I don't think that they're so if they ever were the same. I don't think they remain the same. I think that I think that what's happening, and perhaps it's happening earlier on in the in the in the story here, than Christopher seems to be. Um, uh, sort of permitting in his own vocabulary here uh, is that we're, we're, we're Mike as you say the Sentinels perhaps inspired the Watchers right um, that we have the Sentinels and the idea of these like alert statues right that have wills but uh, which are silent and motionless seem to have inspired the idea of the Silent Watchers and we're going to keep the Sentinels, right? But we're going to put them up in Kirathungal for the very understandable reason that we, we want to retain the scene of Sam breaking in and out past them, right? Um, so, uh, I, um, I think that it's... it's uh, that seems to me the most plausible... And again, I know that's not even really the thing he's trying to solve here. He's trying to figure out when did the tower up at the top cease to be Minas Morgul and all that. Um, but I guess the point that I'm making is that I think the argument he's building here is based on what seems to me a faulty assumption um, that the Silent Watchers equal the Sentinels at all points, as I don't think they necessarily do. Um, anyway. All right. We are out of time, but that's okay. I've only got one slide left. Let's do it. Samwise Goodchild. Um, so here is Tolkien. Uh, this is, I love this passage because this is Christopher giving us like the backstory behind uh, a fairly famous letter, right? This is in Tolkien's published letters about how he wants to make this change, right? Um, and he's writing to Christopher, and here's Christopher telling us his side of the story, right? Uh, so, Tolkien has written to Christopher and said, "I'd kind of like to change. I'm not, I'm, I'm not in love with the name Gamgee. I, I, I want to change Gamgee to Good Child, but I won't do it if you don't like it." Um, and 
Christopher says, I replied that I would never wish to see Gamgee changed a good child, and urged, entirely missing the point, that the name Gamgee was for me the essential expression of the Hobbit peasantry, in their slightly comical aspect, deeply important to the whole work. I mention this to explain my father's subsequent remarks on the subject in that other famous letter. As to Sam Gamgee, I quite agree with what you say, and I wouldn't dream of altering his name without your approval, but the object of the alteration was precisely to bring out the comicness, peasantry, and, if you will, the Englishry of this jewel among the hobbits. Had I thought it out at the beginning, I should have given all the hobbits very English names to match the Shire. I doubt it's English, i.e. the name Gamgee. However, I dare say all your imagination of the character is now bound up with the name. And so, Sam Gamgee remained. Um, so, uh, and yes, Brandon, he sure is a jewel among the hobbits, isn't he? Um, I love... Uh, I, I think it's it's very sporting of Christopher to uh, uh, point out that he was entirely missing the drift of his father's uh, argument, right? Here's, uh, here's Christopher very passionately saying, no, it needs to be Gamgee because I, I want to emphasize this, uh, uh, hobbit ped, this slightly comical hobbit peasantry and his dad very gently saying, yes, son, that's why I wanted to change it because Gamgee doesn't do that, right? This is Tolkien knowing more about names than his son and just frankly having a better sense of the, the history of this than his son. He's like, Dude, son, Gamgee's not even an English name, really, right? Um, if we want to express those things, uh, the slightly comical uh, expression of Hobbit peasantry, that's exactly why I was proposing to change it, son. But that's okay. Despite the fact that you've just totally made my argument for me, for me I'm going to give in to you. Um, uh, but... Um, yeah, so Stephen, this is while Christopher is serving abroad. Christopher's receiving these letters in South Africa uh, with the RAF. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's really hard, isn't it? Because um, I agree with, you know, several of you are expressing, like, the horror of Sam's last name being changed and uh, 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 thanking Christopher for holding out here so that we didn't end up with Samwise Goodchild. Um, I hear that, but of course Tolkien's right, it would have been more consistent, right? Um, he wishes that he'd thought it out more. Right? He should have given them all very English names to match the Shire. Um, and, uh, and he didn't. Um, you're right. Let's see, who was it? Was saying, yeah, Mike was saying, good child is a bit on the nose, right? Uh, yeah, it is. Um, I do have to admit that Although I'm not sure it mightn't be better with a more Englishy name uh, than Gamgee. I mean, of course, I, like Christopher, have all... You know, it is true, I think all of us can agree that... Um, what was the um, the phrase that Tolkien uses? Yes, our ima- all our imagination of the character is bound up with the name. Yes, so... Uh, the idea of changing Sam's name from Gamgee seems horrifying, right? Because all of our imagination is bound up with the name. Um, but um, 
but yeah, it would be. Uh, he's right that it would be more consistent for all of the hobbits to have more Englishy names, right? To con- convey their Englishry a little bit more. Um, I can't think that Good Child is the perfect, uh, or Mike, as you say, perhaps a little too perfect uh, for Sam. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, no, see, Kimber Gamgee is an English surname, and he knows this. He knows even the, the like, the people around Birmingham whom, who it's named after, but it's not an original. It's like it's not from English, right? Um, I mean, Tolkien is an English name, too, and that the Tolkiens have lived in England for generations, but it's a German name, right? Uh, so, yeah, so, I mean, it's... Yes, there are people in Birmingham named Gamgee and have been for generations, but it's not an English word, right? Um, but, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it is... Arthur, you're right. That line about the jewel... Among hobbits, he'd already written that, hadn't he? Of Frodo, that it's the elves say it of Frodo, uh, which makes it really fascinating that he's taking that same phrase and projecting it on Sam instead, right? Like he's one-upping the elves, right? The elves call Frodo a jewel among hobbits, right? But they didn't even realize the guy who's fake snoring on the ground right now—he's the real jewel among hobbits. Um, that is a really interesting point, Stephen, that the, the the rhyme between Sam and Gam, uh, that Sam Gamgee starts with that rhyme, does add a little bit to the silliness. Um, I agree. And Stephen, that clearly is an important element of the silliness, right? You can tell on account of he's, you know, Sam, son of Ham, Gamgee, right? So you've got the rhyme with father and son as well. Now, of course, Samwise and Hamfast, as Tolkien explains in his letter, are both Anglo-Saxon words, right? So, uh, uh, you know, it works that way. But, but yeah, the fact that Gamgee... Uh, um, uh, uh, applies there, uh, you know, with that, with that rhyme. I agree. Because remember, the names... Uh, uh, Sam Gamgee and Ham, you know, uh, Ham Gamgee, Gaffer Gamgee. Um, these were Tolkien family jokes. Like it was an inside joke for like a, a loutish uh, country guy, right? Um, so it was, it was, it was meant to be a, a sort of a silly joke. Um, yeah. Yeah, but I agree, Kate. Even that in itself, right? That it, that the resonance that it had, that that inside joke for the Tolkien family, makes it homelike uh, for them, and maybe homelike is good enough. And of course, it does become homelike for all of us, right? Um, anyway, all right. I am done with my slides. We are done with uh, this chapter and ready to move on uh, next time. So. I will see you guys next Wednesday, um, next Wednesday the 28th. That'll be a good night, uh, and um, I will uh, I, so I will talk to you then. Look forward to, uh, uh, to some more uh, discussions, and uh, thanks for coming along with me. I'll see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>